swing and a fly ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Up and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. In right field. There's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carroll into right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Episode two of Outside the Box with Jeff Conine, part of the Just Baseball Network. I'm Aram Layton, and I'm joined by, of course, the man himself, Jeff Conine, who's joining us from a different backdrop. In last episode, our first episode, you put your man cave on display. In the backdrop, you could see all the autographed bats, baseballs, everything you can imagine from your career. Today, we're exchanging that fancy backdrop for some hotel curtains and a couch because you're in South Bend, Indiana, visiting your son, who's about to play a series against the South Bend Cubs. So thank you for joining me from the hotel. And this is going to be a fun episode number two. Nice, nice. Yeah, we just rolled into South Bend about uh, two hours ago and had a little lunch, got a full belly. I'm ready to talk some talk some baseball. There's already been a lot of things that have happened since we talked. And that's the one thing that's going to be great about this show is that so many things are going to unfold uh, between every episode. But I also felt like we didn't have a chance to get to some of the things that I wanted to talk about just because it can go on and on forever. But we have to start with the jersey, which is going to be the tradition. This one, you gave me a softball on this one because it it was going to be one of Boja. It's a Royals jersey, throwback Royals jersey. By the way, one of my favorites of all time, up there with the teal. You've had some good uh, jerseys through your career, but this is George Brett. I know that's George Brett, and I would love to hear it. We got to start it off. How'd you get, obviously you played with him, but what's the backstory on getting George Brett to uh, ink that nice jersey for you? Well, I don't know if I laid uh, out how I was not a, baseball fan at all growing up. I didn't collect baseball cards, didn't really watch baseball, didn't follow it. And back in the day, the first year I was with the Royals, I got drafted by the Royals in 1987, made it up to the big leagues and got a call up at the end of uh, the 1990 season. So we're on the road and uh, we had roommates back then. This is back in the day when we actually had roommates uh, before that collective bartering agreement like uh, gave us our, our single rooms. My roommate at the time was this kid named Steve Shiflett. He's a relief pitcher, submariner from uh, somewhere in Kansas. And George had just gotten his 3,000th hit. So he asked me, he goes, hey, you're going to get George to sign something for you? I'm like, no, I mean, it just hadn't even crossed my mind because I, I never thought that way. He's like, are you out of your mind? George Brett is going to be first ballot Hall of Famer. You played with him on two different parts of two different seasons. You get to see him win a batting title for the fourth decade that he won batting titles, you have to get something signed. And I'm like, you know, I got to think about it. I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're right. So at that time I got a bat and he signed a personalized a bat to me. And when we got back to Kansas city, after he won the batting title, they made up like a special limited edition shirt for his night that we honored him at the stadium at Kaufman stadium. So he signed that for me as well. And he said, uh, the inscription was thanks for getting hurt and allowing me to do this. Because I was like, you know, I was coming up to the system pretty quickly as a first baseman. They thought I might take over for George um, and he would retire. But I, I got hurt and kind of delayed my delivery to the big leagues. And he said, I mean, George could have played as long as he wanted to. But he said, I let him do that because I got hurt and delayed my arrival to the big leagues. So I actually got this later on when I started collecting jerseys. I sent it to Kansas City and asked him if he would sign it for me and uh, graciously enough, he signed it. It's on the back. Um, but that's my George Brett story. So you said he could hit forever. And I think that's something where you look at the numbers. He was just one of those pure hitters. What made him so good in the regard of just being able to, you said the batting titles in four different decades, just the continued longevity, which we talked about a little bit, but more so on the health side, how is he just able to hit for so long as, I mean, that's a great guy to be able to come up and be able to watch when you're first getting your feet wet. Yeah, you know, he was, uh, you know, Charlie Lau was his hitting coach, and he had a very unique style of hitting that I will say stayed so consistent over his entire career. You know, I also played with Cal Ripken, and Cal would change his swing literally once a week, like something completely different. It was insane how 
how big of change he would make uh, from game to game or week to week where George was identical. He just knew his plan of attack. He knew his strengths. He knew that uh, his load was what it's going to be. His hand path was what it's going to be. And he stayed so consistent with that. And I think that just gave him the confidence to be able to, to hit until he was 42. And that's something that, you know, we were talking about just, again, the health side makes it difficult, but from just the ability to catch up to velocity, especially nowadays. And uh, this was a guy that you mentioned before, and I wanted to just squeeze him in in the back end of this conversation because he's going to be on the move most likely. Nelson Cruz, uh, the Twins, I'm assuming, are going to sell. You know, that they're really struggling this year, but there's a lot of teams that could use Cruz's experience and also his power. I mean, you look at every metric, he's still in the top 5% in the league and just about every batted ball metric you could look at other than the fact that he's just a freak. uh, (laughs) What stands out to you about like how he's able to do it? It's kind of seems similar. That's why I wanted to ask of like that same swing that he's just been able to repeat it. Is that almost the same thing as George Brett in a way? Yeah. I mean, it's consistency, but uh, I think you have to look at what these guys do in the off season. George Brett worked tirelessly in the off season as he got older and he kept in bo- his body. I mean, he had knee problems at the end. He wore a brace underneath his uniform at the end because uh, he had surgery. But, you know, other than that, he really worked at his craft and stayed in shape. And I think Nelson Cruz is the same way. This guy works tirelessly in the offseason to keep that edge because over, the, over, over what he's seen in his career, which he came in probably the tail end of my career, he was coming in uh, where, you know, the average major league fastball was 91 miles an hour. Now they're 94 mile hour average major league fastball. He's still catching up to that and still hitting it out of the ballpark, which is remarkable to me to keep his skills that finely tuned. Uh, well, he's going to be well into his forties before this guy stops hitting. I, I just, I'm always expecting, okay, this is going to be the year where he slows down a little bit and, and it just never happens. But you talk about the jump in velo and somebody that is pretty much just pacing history, just showing everybody that he can do something that essentially nobody can do that we've seen from a starter is, is Jacob DeGrom. And he's routinely hitting 102 and he's 33 years old, right? He, he's not like he's 27. He doesn't have as many miles on his arm because he was a shortstop at Stetson and that whole story and really didn't make it up to the bigs till he was 26. But DeGrom is on pace right now to have what is probably the best pitching season we've seen since Dutch Leonard in 1914, which again, that's, they were playing with essentially balled up socks then, right? (laughs) So what has stood out to you from DeGrom? You know, like what makes him so dominant? You know, I sent you the graphic of Jacob DeGrom, Doc Gooden, Bob Gibson, and Dutch Leonard, all in that same category of just most dominant seasons we've seen. Uh, What puts him in that ballpark with those guys? And is he, Potentially, you think he could keep this going and put up a better season than they ever did? Well, I mean, you know, as you know, you can have uh, one bad start or one bad game and, and that kind of uh, will start things unraveling. But when you look at his mechanics, his mechanics are impeccable. And uh, you talk about repeatable deliveries. Jacob DeGrom repeats his delivery every single time the same way. And when you talk to hitters about how not only the, the velocity, yeah, there's a lot of guys that throw 100 now that get hit pretty hard. Uh, but the way his deception is when he delivers the ball, he hides it a little bit better than most. So it's coming at you. Uh, you know, they've got this, what is it called? Perceived velocity now. Yeah. Which I think is his might even be 105 because he hides the ball so well. And he's got incredible control. So he's putting that ball at 102 on the corners when he wants to with a ridiculous wipeout slider and a changeup that uh, falls off the table. So you, you add all those components together and you're getting uh, like you said a pitching package and performance like we've never seen before and and I think you hit the scouting report pretty well I mean that's a guy that you can only prepare for so much right the fastball he locates at 100 the slider is 90 to 92 uh, and looks just like the fastball until the last 15 feet and then you mentioned the changeup is the same story how how would you game plan for somebody like that when you get up at the plate like what I would pray for a mistake and then pray that I don't miss it when I get it because you're not getting too many uh, per at bat. You know, when they say when you're coming up, you're going to get maybe one or two pitches per at bat that you can actually hit with him. You might get one per night. And uh, when he does give you that one mistake, you can't miss it. 
Yeah, your son actually in an interview said that that's the one guy he wants to face in the major leagues. And (laughs) when that happens, I'm going to follow up with him and say, you still feel that way? Because I think that tune will change after an at-bat. But he's like, I just want to see what it's like because he really is that different on the mound. And you mentioned the one blow-up start and and that being something that, you know, could – upend your ERA when it's 0.95. But well, he, went with, from, he just gave up, what, three runs and went from like a, a 0.6 to a 0.9? I mean, that's like a huge difference. Yeah, it's a huge jump. So it's really hard to maintain that. And that's what I think is interesting. But I wanted your take also on, because there's some different thoughts on this. And I was looking at some old MVP awards and and Raleigh Fingers won an MVP one year. And that like kind of it shouldn't have bothered me, but it did. Um, and I understand he was fantastic. I, but when I was looking at the numbers then, it, it was just pretty wild. What are your thoughts on on pitchers winning MVPs? Because it always becomes a big topic. But right now, what DeGrom's doing, he's destroying any of the numbers of any other pitchers that have won the MVP. But I know on the flip side, people will say, well, they have the, uh, the pitcher award anyway. Uh, where do you stand on that? You're asking a hitter this question. Yes. You're asking a hitter this question. Pitchers well, you, not- pitched, you pitched a little. Oh, yeah. Very little and very uh, poorly. I would not have won an MVP. Actually, I did win an MVP in Little League. That was, uh, that was my, my shining moment as a pitcher. But, and you won an MVP in Double A as a hitter. That's right. So I got both sides of the ball there. But uh, for me, like you said, pitchers have their award. He is the best pitcher in baseball, bar none. He gets the Cy Young Award. MVP, you're talking about most valuable to a team every single day uh, for a grind of 162 games. Maybe it's old school of me, but I think position player should only win that award. Uh, I'm all here for the old school, but I'm I'm always going to to play a little bit of the devil's advocate on that. So should they change it to just most valuable hitter then? But you're playing every day. I mean, um, now I, I do understand that argument too. And even with a reliever, then is it better or worse? Because <laughs> at least the reliever is throwing more often, but he's only playing one inning. Right, um, but they get to go out there uh, nice and. They know they can – they let it go as hard as they possibly can for one inning. Um, and the specialization we see now on the back end of bullpens yeah. is like we've never seen before. Like literally guys have the sixth inning assigned to them and the seventh inning assigned to them and the eighth inning assigned to them. Now you got the closer comes in after all those dominoes have fallen. So, um, you know, the, the back in the day when, when Rivera would – he would have maybe uh, eight out saves. You know, he's coming in the seventh. Uh, when games need to be saved and he's finishing out that game. So um, to me, that's, that's valuable. When you know you can count on a guy to come into a seventh inning of a game and that's your closer, that's who's we're relying on. And he finishes that game out. Um, for me, it's just a little bit too specialized now. I, I do agree with that hundred percent. And that segues me into every episode. I reach out to the staff and our staff chat and I say, you guys get one question for, for Jeff Conine ahead of this re- recording. And they redeemed that with a, a very vague question, but they went down a Billy Wagner rabbit hole yesterday. Um, and, and I mean, th- this chat will go to like two in the morning, just going down the, the biggest rabbit holes you can and black holes in baseball you can imagine. Uh, and I have to go to bed. But Billy, Billy Wagner was the rabbit hole yesterday. And he is a borderline Hall of Fame guy and was really dominant. Uh, you were one for eight against him in your career. Uh, so but you didn't strike out a lot. I think only one strike out against him. But he was really, really hard to hit. They just wanted to know what that was like in the box and what, what you thought made him so good. He kind of seemed like what they were saying was Josh Hader before Josh Hader. I think I was, I think I took him deep too, didn't I? Or no? I'll tell was you. My, in, was my one, one hit home run? I can tell you in. Might have you hit been. a home run off a lot of guys. I'm like scrolling right now, but you answer that and I am going to look up what you did to <laughs> Billy Wagner was compact. I mean, he was only 5'9, five, 5'10. Five, uh, in a very unique short arm action. So I think a lot of these, especially Hader, I think he's got more of a, a sweeping that arm. Long, action, yeah. Right? Where Billy Wagner looked like he's throwing darts. So he's actually throwing a hundred when a hundred meant it was a hundred. Like he was a rare bird in the big leagues where, especially from the left side, Randy Johnson might've been the only other guy that was throwing hundred miles an hour from the left side. And uh, just his delivery, the way that the ball, it almost looked, like it was rising toward you because he really sunk deep into those legs and didn't come down like a, a Johnson did at you. Almost like it was coming up at you uh, because he got uh, so low in that delivery. And man, I'll tell you what, 
uh, talk about it. Like you said, dominant guy that dominated for a long time. I think his case per, per nine still might be oh, all time. I mean, outrageous what he did. Uh, and competitor, I got, I, you know, I played with him at the very end uh, with the Mets and uh, just a guy that you wanted the ball to be handed to in the ninth inning because he was that good. So I mentioned before we got on air too, and, and I, I'm a believer, by the way, that he should be in the Hall of Fame. I think when you do it as long as he has, he, he should be there. And, and I think you broke it down really well. He was pretty much the spin rate guy before people were talking about spin rates. When you talk about that riding action to the fastball, which just makes it brutal. Uh, but one of the questions I wanted to ask you too is every episode, I'm going to quiz you on yourself. And I have one for you today. You might know this. This might be easy. This might be tough. I'm not sure. Last episode, we talked about Coors Field and Mile High and how you love to hit there. Obviously, that was one of the most successful parks for you that you didn't call a home park for yourself. Uh, The two that you hit the most home runs in in your career were Pro Player or Joe Robbie or whatever the 35,000 names they had for it. You hit 63 home runs there. Camden Yards, you hit 44. Coors, you hit seven. And there's one other stadium where you hit seven home runs. Do you know what stadium that is? Ooh. Uh, one other stadium hits seven. Um, give me a hint. Is it the National League East? It is in the National League, not the East. Not the East. If, there, if I give you a legitimate oh. hint, it will give it away. Is it Southern California? Nope. No. Midwest. Cubs. Yep. Regular? You got it. Yep, you got it. 301, 360, 500 slash line there, seven home runs in 36 starts. And now you know if anything I said would have given it away. If I said, if I said anything to do with the, the division series uh, or, or the championship series, excuse me, then right. it, it would have given it away. But yeah, did you just see the ball better there? What was the uh, reason for success in uh, a place like Wrigley Field? Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, big league ballplayers tend to complain a lot about night games. I mean, sorry, day games. And back in the day, the Cubs had every game was a day game because they had no lights for one. And then when they even they got lights, the tradition was to have day games in Chicago. So uh, we always complained as players going in there because we knew every other game is a night game. And then all of a sudden you've got your whole schedules kind of disrupted with these day games. So I was one of those that complained about day games because I didn't like to wake up early, but I always hit, I think I, I don't know what my slash line is day versus night, but I think I hit better in the day than I did at night. So you did. that's my one thing is that uh, during uh, day games in Wrigley, we had so many more day games there that I just hit better during the day. Yep. 290 during day games, 283 during night games. Uh, you had a 781 OPS in night games, 812 in day games. So there you go. Uh, There was something that stood out to me, too. Um, I remember Josh Hamilton specifically being horrid on day games. And they were talking about I'm by they I'm just going to attribute. I have no idea. But I remember this being a pretty, pretty widely discussed story. It was that you have if you have bright blue eyes, some people are not able to fight the sunlight a bit more. I've talked about this with your son, too, with Griffin, because he goes sunglasses and day games. Is, Is that something that was more well known? Because. I'll bring that fact out about Josh Hamilton to people and they're stunned about the reason why uh, you might be struggling in day games if you have bright blue eyes. Well, I couldn't, I could barely open my eyes uh, and I had to wear sunglasses during day games because I squinted so badly when uh, I'd go outside, especially in Florida sun, you know, the Florida sun is as intense as it gets. Um, And also I had, I had LASIK or PRK actually before LASIK was PRK and the, ophthalmologist that did it said you need to wear glasses outside for a while to protect your eyes from the sun so that happened to be spring training is right on the corner so i threw sunglasses on all day games during spring training i got used to it and then from then i could not hit during the day without sunglasses on because i could just open my eyes i mean because like you said with with the blue eyes it's like i was squinting so badly i think you're not your vision's not as good as when you got glasses on you can just open up your eyes that's that's one of those things. I think I'm 10 for 10. Everybody I tell that eye color actually matters with stuff like that. They're they're baffled. But it's it's a perfect example of how you were able to live that and experience that. So there was one thing that you mentioned a few minutes ago that I wanted to tie into, because as the lead prospect writer as well for, for just baseball.com, right? I, I 
have to edit all the articles across the board, but the ones that I like to specialize in writing is, is the prospect stuff. I love it. And the one thing that drives me nuts beyond belief, and it's just, it's just the impatience that comes with just being a sports fan is that people are expecting these instant results from prospects because they dominate through the minor leagues. And uh, that's something that happens sometimes. I mean, you hit the ground running yourself and it's different for every person, but Wander Franco is probably one of the most just highly touted prospects we've seen in a really long time. And the guy hit 300 every single year in the minor leagues as a 17 year old, 18 year old, whatever. So you'd expect him to go straight up to the big leagues and succeed. He's had moments, but he's been struggling. Jared Kelenic, another guy that was one of the most dominant players through the minor leagues as can't miss as you can find. And he was three for 40 or something like that through his first uh, handful of games. And he got sent down and he's going to be just fine as well. But uh, one for the people that, you know, are a little bit just expecting immediate results. And can you uh, kind of explain why that transition, even if you're demolishing baseballs in triple a, what makes it so hard to make that quick adjustment to the major leagues, aside from the fact that they are better, but are there other factors that contribute? Absolutely. And it's all in the head. Um, you talk about, you know, the minor leagues is all about development. So when you're in, you first get drafted and you go out there and you struggle a little bit, you know, they're, they're basically coddling you along, not coddling you, but just, Hey, you're, you're okay to fail right now. We're going to teach you how to win. We're going to teach you how to be successful. So that kind of mindset is all the way through the minor leagues. So as a player, you get kind of relaxed, like, okay, if I have a struggle, a little bit of a struggling time right now, or uh, I, I, I stink for a week, it's okay because this is all about my development. And as you get more and more confidence, as you're going through the minor leagues, that these guys are supremely talented, they got no pressure on them to do anything except for rake, right? So they're going to go out there and hit, hit, hit. Well, now you flip the switch, you go to the big leagues. Now big leagues is there is no development. You have to perform now and we have to win games now. There is no, I'm going to give you a week uh, to get acclimated or a month to uh, get your feet wet. And then you can start performing. No, they want you to come in and start performing right that second, because that's what we do. And as a player, you know that. So when you look outside the lines of a baseball field, you've got massive crowds. Now you've got ESPN, you've got television cameras, you've got media interviewing in front of your locker. Hey, Wander, you just came up and you've been killing the minor leagues. How do you expect to do up here in the big leagues? Oh, now if I make an error, I'm going to be on Sports Center that night. If I uh, drop a fly ball, I'm going to be on Sports Center that night. You know, I got family requests. I've got people begging me for tickets. Uh, I mean, you lump all this stuff together on a young kid that's coming up for the first time. And you can see why their mind might lose focus about the game itself. And think about all those other things. And if you're not focused on hitting a baseball, you're not focused on your craft in between the lines, you're going to struggle. And uh, I saw it so many times with guys that I played with. Um, you know, you, you get a guy that hits 320 in AAA consistently every year. He gets called up, he gets 200 because somebody got hurt. Well, that, sorry, 200, you're back down to AAA. He comes back to AAA, hits 320 again. Goes back up to the big leagues, hits 200. For me, that's that's just a mental um, a flaw that you, you're not separating the outside stuff with the game stuff. Because, you know, George Brett told me when I was super nervous and get out there, he's like, hey, man, I put my pants on just like you do. <laughs> the game is the exact same out there. This, the mound is still 60 feet. The base is still 90 feet. When you get in that space, that's when you should block everything else and just play baseball. And I love the point of, of needing instant results because with somebody like Wander Franco, he's getting called up to the defending AL champions who are playing good ball right now. And they called him up for a reason. It wasn't to develop him. It was to help them win right now. Uh, right. And they needed some help in the infield. So it's a really interesting point in that regard. And, and also, I don't think people realize all of those little things that pile on top of you when it's not just the media, it's the family, it's the friends, it's, it's everything. And honestly, that's something that I, it's, it's a, you know, it's one of those things that comes with the territory, but uh, that's one of the few things I don't envy about being a baseball player, but you got to find a way to manage it. And uh, for you, you started in a unique situation because you essentially right in the beginning of your career, go over to a brand new franchise. And that's a big story in itself. And then not too long after that, you weren't a prospect anymore, but still 
pretty young into your career, you're playing for a World Series title. Uh, what was that like in terms of just managing all of that? Because I'm sure the the initial buzz in 93 was pretty crazy. I don't know if there was any pressure to win right away. I think people were just happy to have baseball in South Florida, but that was still a unique situation to fall into. How did that, uh, I guess, how did that make things different for, for you versus maybe somebody else that might be coming up to a team that has existed for a little bit longer than a few days? Well, just that, I mean, I'm playing for the Royals at the time and uh, they had to leave guys unprotected so that the Marlins and the Rockies could draft from organizations to create, <laughs> create an organization because they couldn't draft players at that time. They had a regular draft session, but they need to fill minor league teams. So uh, I was left unprotected the first round and the Marlins got me in that first round. So when you're basically, you feel like an outcast out of an organization that the Royal signed me and I went up through their minor league system. I had so many friends there and I thought that I was going to be playing in front of those waterfalls for a long, long time. They leave me unprotected and now I'm gone and I'm going to Florida, brand new team. Uh, the stadium was a football stadium. They're going to convert into a baseball stadium. The spring training complex wasn't even finished yet when we got there. They had no stadium yet. We had Meyer League fields. We kind of called it the name tag spring training where so now you got cast offs from every other organization and you almost have to look at the, oh yeah, hey Bob, how you doing? Uh, nice to meet you. I'm Jeff. Uh, welcome to the Marlins, you know? So that in and of itself kind of lent to a more relaxed atmosphere. Like we had no expectations on us for that first year. Brand new team in South Florida. We were cast off from other organizations. I don't think anybody gave us any chance at all to really do well in that division that year. But uh, I don't. Very few people know this, but we drew 3.3 million fans in in South Florida that first year, which is crazy. That would rank in the top five in all of baseball right now. Um, and wow. they came out to watch. They really came out to watch. But since that situation happened for me, especially. I was able to just be a relaxed ball player, go out there and I got into a groove and I had a good year and that just propelled me from there on. It gave me the confidence to know that I belong here. One of the interesting things uh, about baseball and the support and specifically with the Marlins and a lot of the other maybe smaller market teams is that baseball was doing unbelievably. I mean, there's a reason why they expanded in 93, right? Baseball was, was booming and you mentioned it 3.3 million in that first season shortly after is the infamous strike. And I'm sure that that put a, a damper on not only baseball, but the Marlins and then their expansion. I dug up some old articles of just people saying, you know, screw baseball and, you know, from prominent sports writers just saying this is ridiculous. And I know it was a big black eye on the game. Uh, and that's something we're going to talk about right after this, about your impending C CBA discussions that will be coming up after this year. But with the Marlins in that regard, because they are basically the butt of a joke when it comes to attendance and things like that. Do you think that the strike, I don't think it's all to blame because we know South Florida fans can uh, show up when they're winning and not as much. And I think I'm allowed to say that being a South Florida fan for my entire life. Uh, but do you think that that played a part in the long-term attendance struggles, having that shock to the system of just baseball and the lack of trust between fans and, and just the league in itself? I think it was more short-term effect uh, than it was long-term. You know, we had 3.3 million fans that first year and attendance the second year, I think was going to, we were projected to be over 3 million that year too, but it was going to be a little bit less. So, okay, the strike comes and, and people are mad and I get it. You know, uh, we took baseball season away from them. I mean, I think about the people in Montreal that didn't get to see that tremendous team. Uh, they were, there's rolling, there's steamrolling everybody into the playoffs and, and they got that taken away from them. So in that moment, yes. So you come back in 95, it's a shortened season. We only play 144 games in 95. You know, in 96 now, uh, the Marlins are starting to kind of get back on their feet. It's a full season of baseball again. And then Wayne goes out and says, you know what, Dave Dombrowski, go build me the best team you can get. I want to see if baseball is going to come back in South Florida to where it was, you know, pre-strike. So he did that. Dave did that and went out, obviously – you know what he built. He built a team that was absolutely uh, built to do what we did. You know, we won the World Series because Dave Dombrowski went out there and constructed a team with Jim Leland at the, at the helm that, that did what we did. We won the World Series. But attendance didn't reflect the greatness of that team. And I think Wayne got frustrated at that fact and thought that long-term baseball, attendance-wise, was never going to come back to what it was 
that first year and a half that we had the team. So I think that's one of the, that's one of the decisions uh, to sell for, for Wayne back then. And that's really interesting because I know you had mentioned in the past to me that that was the year where you guys went in with expectations. This wasn't like 03 where it, it just kind of happened uh, in the back half of the season. He, they put together a team to win and they had big name guys and led by Gary Sheffield and some of these other stars that have really helped take it to the next level and Bonilla and all of those guys. So I, I think that's something that uh, people don't realize is, it was a team that was loaded up to win then real quick too, by the way, when you mentioned the Expos, because what they were doing that season, they were 34 games over 500. They were 74 and 40 and their entire team was young and just super talented, right? They had a young Cliff Floyd, uh, Moises Alou at 27 was absolutely destroying. He probably, he probably would have been an MVP candidate or might've won the MVP. And then they had a couple of decent pitchers like Pedro Martinez at 22 years old, Ken Hill, uh, Jeff Fasaro, like there were so many guys that could throw on that team and they never got back there because it just, that was the year for them. Larry Walker, of course, too. How could I forget Larry Walker? So this team, they were uber talented and don't have much to show for it that year. You were mashing that year as well. I, I would probably say you were on pace for your best season, maybe ever, even when it was all said and done, probably would have been the best season of your career. Uh, I, I know that you're not going to just like be selfish about it and say that. Cause I know you've said this to me in the past, but uh, is that something that you thought about a little bit after? Like, man, I, what would I have done in a full season? Maybe not as bad as the Expos, uh, where, where they will never know and the franchise doesn't exist anymore. But uh, did you always have that little bit of wonder of what would I have done that year? Because you were on a, a tear. Yeah, I mean, like you said, that was my best season um, in, in pretty much every category. And, um, you know, when you've got that kind of feel going from a season, it usually lasts for a long time. And that was probably, I think it was August 12th, we went on strike. So I still had uh, five, six, seven weeks of the season left to go. And, uh, you know, when you get on a roll like that and you get a feeling like that, of course, you never want it to end. And I was bummed. You know, I understood. I understood. It was only my second year. I understood why the whole thing happened. But, yes, personally, I was bummed I couldn't finish out that season. So history sometimes tends to repeat itself. And uh, that might be something we're looking at here with – I think the struggles to figure out exactly what was going to happen with last season, uh, given the pandemic and all of that, but I think it really exposed a lot of the uh, separation between the players and the owners in the league right now in terms of where they all stand when it comes to just the operations and the finances and baseball. There's going to be a really, really big CBA, uh, I guess negotiations can be the word, uh, but I've seen a lot of really well-written reports on ESPN or the athletic or whatever, highlighting how ugly these, uh, this relationship is right now between players and owners. And uh, are there any aspects to this that remind you of the nineties? And uh, are we at a point here where baseball will never allow itself to get back to where it was with that strike, knowing what it did to the game, or could the feud in your opinion be something that, uh, is enough to push this into a spot where we're right back to history repeating itself. Well, you know, it, it, we came from there to a, a, a unprecedented um, peace, we would say, between the Players Association, the union, and the owners. And I think there was uh, just a give and take of key issues on both sides that, you know, came together at the end to give a, a, a CBA. You know, we went on strike in, in 94. We went, almost went on strike in 90. Uh, when it was up again in 2000, uh, I was a phone call away because I was the assistant player to uh, rep. We were in Anaheim, and uh, I was told, call the guys and tell them we're not going to the ballpark tonight. That's what it came down to. So at like 4 o'clock, I got a phone call. Okay, we're good to go because that's how – it went down to the very wire. So I called up all the guys that I had on my list. I'm like, all right, going to the ballpark, going to the ballpark, got the deal done. And that, you know, lasted for another five or six years. And then until then, it's been a pretty seamless, as far as we know, pretty seamless negotiations. Uh, if it has been acrimonious, they've, they've kept it hidden pretty well. But now you're starting to see the teeth come out a little bit. And rightfully so, last year was a huge hit for everyone, uh, not only players, but owners. You, you think about what these teams employ, what the cities do um, around these stadiums to, to boost the economy and the tourism that, that people come in to see games in Boston and New York and Colorado and, and these destination-type places. I mean, 
you know, we'll never know probably as players what that financial toll was. So uh, I'm afraid to say, and I, I've seen it kind of come in and, I, and I've seen it kind of degrading a little bit, the, the relationship between ownership and player. Um, and I, I hate to say it's going to get ugly, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it does. And the interesting thing here, too, was just the way things were leaked. And you talk about, you know, we're in a different age, too, from the early 90s in terms of accessibility and how things can get out and and all of those things. But it was just very bizarre to me to have Rob Manfred come out one day and say, uh, I'm very optimistic about a season. And then a few days later, just be like, you know what, it might not happen this year. And just what changed in two, three days where you go from one polar opposite to the other. And those are the things that make me concerned. It's like, I feel like a lot of it is posturing. There's so much that is just, uh, just a bad look because it's not really true negotiations. I feel like a lot of it is, is posturing in those things. And uh, now in a, in a world where it's covered more media wise, and we saw something like Pete Alonzo coming out and saying that, it was a fact that was the word he used fact that major league baseball, and we know they manipulate the baseballs, but that they manipulate it based on the impending free agent class. And uh, David Sampson had a good take on it. He's like, this is just only going to make CBA negotiations worse. Right. If I'm an owner, if I'm a MLB executive, I'm not going to be happy with that accusation. Right. And you don't really get a chance to rebuttal. That's an insane accusation in itself, but also just, why are we getting to the point there where, where players are just coming out and, you know, they're not afraid to speak their minds. Was it like that at all uh, when you were playing? And is that something that you think maybe is making things a bit more difficult in this media age as well? Well, this media age uh, definitely makes everything more difficult. Um, Like you said, no information is sacred anymore. You know, we had uh, such a tight knit group of union that, we had to meet together in one spot. So we had two different meetings. Usually uh, one would be on the East coast, one on the West coast. We'd have 350 players together at one time speaking with each other about uh, what we're going through at that moment. Well, now you don't get guys together anymore. It's all uh, via tweet or zoom or however disconnect you want to make that. But when you're together and you're sharing ideas and you're sharing a passion about how you think things should be in a room together, that makes for a much more, uh, much stronger group of men than it would be the way they're doing it now. So, you know, I, I like to say that, that we had the strongest union maybe in the history of any union because, you know, we fought for all the guys did prior to that, you know, and we held that and we kept that uh, very close to our hearts that we wanted to keep that legacy going where I don't know if today's players have that same legacy and that same feeling that, oh, my God, I want to go to battle because of all these guys that went to battle before us. And that can show some chinks in the armor, you know. Um, and, and, of course, what you said is very true. There's all kinds of posturing. There's all kinds of misinformation, disinformation to, to kind of lead one side to think you're thinking one way and then do something completely different. So, But I think that's just basic negotiations. That, that happens all the time in every boardroom in America. It's going to happen on this uh, CBA uh, negotiation as well. And do you think the topic of manipulating baseballs based on free agent classes will come up? Well, I, that to me, that blows my mind. But even then, think about, you know, they make Major League Baseballs in a factory in Costa Rica. Do you think a team of scientists goes down there every offseason and says, okay, this is the type of yarn you have to use this year. This is the tension of which your machines have to wind it to make it, I don't know, it, it just seems a little far-fetched. But when you hear all the players every day saying, oh, my God, this ball is different. This ball is totally different than it was last year. Oh, man, I don't know if um, you would think they'd deaden the ball all the time so they wouldn't have to pay as much money to the offensive players, Right. So yeah. what are we, we're going to really tight it up this year. These guys are going to have monster off the year numbers. So we're going to have, have to pay everybody the next year, even more. I, I don't know. It, it's, it seems far fetched to me, but um, like you said, I wish somebody just come out and say, yes, the ball's yeah. a little, it's a little tighter this year. That's all there is to it. Yes. This year we flatten the seams a little bit. So at least we know we're de- what we're dealing with here. 
That's the interesting thing is, is we know that the, the baseballs are a little bit different each year, but to say that it was based on, oh, Trevor Story is headlining the free agent class, was dead in these baseballs. I think that's a little ridiculous, but it is weird that, you know, they were a bit hesitant to just say, hey, we're going to make the seams a bit tighter this year. Or, hey, we're, we're going to do this or that, or this may have happened because of this. They almost tried to sweep it under the rug. And then you have these writers who are also astrophysicists breaking it down and saying, Oh, this is different. And it's like, you really wanted it to get exposed that way. Uh, that's, that's the part where I do see Pete Alonso's point, but at the same time, yeah. Do you think that they're sending people down to Costa Rica to try to engineer each baseball based on, you know, what they think is going to be the free agent class. You have players emerge all the time uh, and what you think could be a good free agent class might not be. But speaking of players emerging and legacy, Vlad Guerrero Jr. Is a guy that, I pretty much just emailed you and it was just like, I want your thoughts on this guy. because to me, what he's doing is and it's early still, you know, we're, we're about to get to the halfway mark or we're past the halfway mark games wise. Uh, but the all-star break is approaching. He's on pace to have one of the best seasons we've seen in a very, very long time. And uh, really you could give him a shot at winning the triple crown. If, if he can catch up on the home runs category a little bit, but what's amazed me is that Miguel Cabrera esque ability to hit for average, not strike out in this day and age, and also still hit for a ton of power. Uh, what has stood out the most? You know, you got to play against his dad, I'm sure, plenty. Uh, but what what stood out the most with Vlad Guerrero Jr.? And uh, what are the commonalities you see between the two of them? Well, I think uh, you've seen Vlad Guerrero Jr. kind of, you know, he started off like gangbusters. He had 15 home runs super early in his first year and then pretty much got shut down. He did not hit but one or two the rest of the entire season. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you saw that excitement around him. I think you saw the excitement of him getting up there and dominating major league pitching. And then uh, they figured me out a little bit. Maybe some self-doubt comes in there. Well, this is a supremely confident individual. You know, Griffin played with him a little bit, had a little bit of exposure in, with the Blue Jays. And if he's anything like his dad, his dad was one of the best contact hitters I've ever seen. I actually saw him hit a ball that bounced for a base hit. Yes, he, he, he Swung at a curveball in the dirt and it bounced, and he got a base hit on it. Yeah, I, it's it's insanely talented that way for, for contact, and I think that's been passed down to Vlad Jr. Is that when you look at the kid, I mean, he's huge. He's a massive guy that has tremendous bat speed, but he also has that skill of making contact with the baseball that not many guys have. But add all those factors in with supreme confidence. This guy plays with the confidence of a ten-year major league vet. And he gets that from his dad, who played with reckless abandon. This guy didn't care about anything. He had one of the greatest arms I've ever seen from the outfield. He ran the bases like, like you know, he was on fire. I mean, this guy was really one of the most exciting baseball players uh, that I've ever played against. And when you look at that spark and that fire, when Vlad Jr. has been around him the entire his entire life, growing up in this big league ways. I think he feeds off that confidence that his dad had at the plate. They don't think about failing. They don't think about not being able to do well. They don't think about, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to worry about my strikeouts. This guy says, I see the ball and I'm going to destroy it. And you're seeing that confidence build now to be, like you said, maybe one of the greatest hitters uh, of that young generation coming up right now. Well, that was the other thing is we are in a point in time now where, there are some really darn good hitters and uh, not only just in the fact that they can hit for a ton of power, you have your Aaron judges and your Bryce Harper's and those guys. And uh, the good part though, that is that you're also getting some newfound contact and power guys like Vladdy, like Juan Soto, uh, some of these other guys that are just really impressively being able to make consistent contact. And I'm hoping that that's kind of going to be the next wave of guys as well, but when you look at another son in Fernando Tatis Jr., and he has a little bit of swing and miss in his game, but another guy that you know, his dad has one of the coolest records ever of two grand slams in an inning. Uh, you didn't overlap with him in that one year with the Mets, right? He was, was he done at that point? Yeah, he was done at that point. I played against him, obviously, but I didn't play with him. But totally different players for, for one. But, you know, he's playing shortstop. He's been probably the most, uh, I guess, marketable and entertaining player in the majors, is that the same sun fire thing that, that we're talking about here is, is the, whatever we talk about the bloodlines and, you know, that's something that people always cite when it comes to 
prospects. And I'm sure, I mean, Griffin absolutely mashed and won Cape player of the year. So that helps, but they always use that as like icing on the cake, right? His father played in the bigs and it makes sense in terms of the bio, the biological aspect of it. But would you say that the mental aspect of it is almost as, if not more important than the physical side uh, of the genes that you passed down? Because also your wife, Cindy's also a very good athlete. So Griffin was in good shape in terms of uh, that side of things. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I've talked to Griffin about uh, nothing but the mental side of the game for the last four or five years uh, of his baseball career. And like you said, you can combine all this ridiculous talent and uh, absurd ability, but if you can't process that and use it mentally, if you've got doubts, if you've got, uh, if you're worried about striking out rather than hitting the ball hard, all these things combined that it's going to re- retard your ability to be what these guys are doing. Plus, you know, they just, they, they play with an air nowadays, you know, with the, the showboat thing. I mean, we're not going to get into that now, but that's what they, and that gives them confidence. This game is all about confidence and they have fun. These guys, I tell you what, they, they look like they're having a blast out there every single night. You know, back in my day, we would have, kind of looked at that as especially as a young player like oh you're not supposed to act like that you know you should be more calm and just keep your mouth shut and play the game hard you know but they're playing the game hard and I think they're playing it right for the most part and they're having fun doing it I think they just play with a, a certain level of confidence especially those guys we talked about that lets them excel to the level that they're doing right now which is off the charts did you realize you just said back in my day I know right i, I- is that one of the first times you ever said that? Yeah, I'm old, man. All of a yeah. sudden, super old. Well, you have a son who is leading the minor leagues in home runs right now. And that's what we'll wrap up with. He's tied with Joe Adele, who is also a behemoth of a person and uh, one of the most talented players physically in all of minor league baseball. Griff is right there with him. 17 home runs. Uh, he has been on fire and you're in South Bend, as we mentioned earlier, to go watch him play a place where he likes to hit. Uh, that is going to be fun to watch. I'm going to be tuning in tonight, of course. But again, we talked about it briefly in the last episode. I know that it is way harder to watch your son play than to play yourself, but it's got to be a lot easier when he's playing the way he is. Uh, what, what have you seen from him over the last couple games in the last, I mean, he homered what in four straight. What did you see that really stood out in terms of how he's been able to catch fire here uh, in high A and, and make a push now to get to double A hopefully pretty soon. Yeah. You know, um, obviously it is hard for me to watch because it goes both ways. I beam with pride when he does well and I hurt inside because I know when he struggles, I know what that feels like. So you're kind of on a roller coaster of emotions all the time, but, you know, Griffin is one of the most dedicated people to his craft I've ever seen. He's way more dedicated than I was uh, at that time because just everything that goes throughout his day is used to help him perform that night. Oh, he, he refuses to eat food that tastes good. It's like unbelievable. I just like, here, just have a, pizza, a slice of pizza. Please yeah. have a slice of pizza. No, nope, I got to do it. Not going to do it. Have yeah. a slice of cake. It's your birthday. Have a, no, nope, can't do it. No. Nope. I mean, that's how dedicated he is to his craft. And, you know, when you watch the ball come off his bat, I saw a replay because Beloit doesn't have video right now during the games. I saw a ball come off the bat uh, from behind the other night when he hit a ball out to, to left center field. But the trajectory off the bat looked like a pop-up. Mm-hmm. So if I was just to watch that game and saw him, I'd be like, dang, he just missed it. And the ball carried out of the ballpark. I mean, I can't relate to that because I had to pull a ball to hit it out. I could not hit a ball with that trajectory on any, any direction right of second base and expect it to go out where he can do that. So he's got a special gift of just his natural swing slot. Obviously, uh, he works out like a beast, so he's phenomenally strong. He's got great bat speed and, you know, the mental capability of keeping in the game and, and sticking with your plan. That's what he's doing, and that's why he's, being, he's successful. And the last thing I'll ask, because I think the way we talked about it a little bit last time, but in terms of, of how he's pitched to, and uh, you were somebody that maybe you, you got your home runs, but you mentioned, I mean, Griffin's on, on a different level in terms of, of the power he's leading 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of minor leaguers right now in home runs uh, as not totally being able to probably relate. I'm sure in the minor leagues, you, you probably got pitched around a little bit, but in, in an era now too, where we see a lot more junk and uh, a lot more walks and things like that. Uh, are you able to put yourself in his shoes a little bit in terms of just not getting pitched to, or is that something that you've had to almost think about? Like, what would I have done in that situation? Because I don't know if you ever walked almost 20% of the time in your career. That's not even uh, a shot at you. That's just outrageous how much he's walking. Yeah. You know what? I was uh, probably too good at putting the ball in play when I should have put the ball in play where, you know, you, you talk Griffin gets talked a lot about swinging and misses, but when he's swinging at a ball, he's looking to do damage where a lot of times I hated striking out. So a lot of times I would almost put the ball in play weekly rather than a big swing and miss so I'm making weak outs instead of, you know, swinging and missing at, at the baseball. So um, I think he's much more patient than I was at that because I hate it. Sorry, I just want to put the ball in play all the time. And I was very aggressive early in the count. So there are games I would see six pitches the entire night because if they're throwing a fastball anywhere in the white part of the plate, I'm putting it in play. And I was going to put it in play, but, uh, you know, he's, he's better at I'm going to foul one off and then get to the next one where I can really do damage with it where I would put that, that first one in play. So that leads to maybe a little better average, but fewer walks for sure, fewer strikeouts for sure, but uh, he's going to do much more damage with the baseball. It's, it's like exit velocity is going to be way higher than mine ever was. I mean, 17 home runs already is, is a perfect example of that. So you, you got a ball game coming up a little bit today. You got the series in South Bend, and uh, I'm going to try and make it out that way uh, right after you guys. So we'll be seeing a lot of familiar faces, and uh, this is going to be fun. I know it's one of his favorite places to hit. Uh, you are now out there for the first time. Uh, our next episode, you'll probably still be there in South Bend. We'll have to we'll have to figure out how we're going to navigate that one. But then it'll be back to your fancy, fancy backdrop. You might yeah. even have a brand new fancy mic as well. Uh, so we got a lot of good things coming with Outside the Box with Jeff Conine and also some guests probably on the horizon that we're going to start lining up. So this is always a ton of fun. Uh, I still can't believe we're going to be able to do this twice a week. Uh, it's something that I look forward to every single week. And uh, we're going to start fielding some questions from the audience as well. So I'll, I'll get you a little bit of heads up. Uh, but we are definitely going to open it up because I've had so many people come out and say, you know, the insight is just amazing. There's just so many things that I learned just from one episode. And I was like, well, get ready to learn twice a week. Uh, <laughs> so it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, just letting everybody know that our, our DMs will be open and I will filter the questions over to Jeff and uh, we'll have a lot of fun Q&A opportunities at the end of episodes as well. But uh, we got another one coming up soon, twice a week moving forward. We're on almost every platform except for Apple. Apple needs to get it going. I, it's say They say it takes up to 10 days. I, 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 it might, it's something, it might be your name. I, I don't know what it is, but outside the box of Jeff Conine hasn't gotten the thumbs up yet. Uh, it, it should be a day or two, but we're on every other platform, wherever you can get us. And we will be everywhere uh, by the time most people listen to this. Look forward to it, man. I look forward to talking shop and I like, I want to hear from everybody else too. Likewise, looking forward to some of the questions that people will have for you. And I'm purposely going to pick the ones that put you on the spot the most. Now we'll pick some good ones and uh, feel free to fire away. Everybody who's listening to our TikTok DM or our Twitter or Instagram DM, whatever it may be, reach out to us. Let us know what questions you may have. But there is a question tab on TikTok as well as our messages being open on Instagram. That'll do it for today's episode. Really looking forward to talking to you all twice a week along with Jeff Conine. And we have a lot of fun stuff ahead. So stay tuned. Keep up at JustBaseball.com. You can follow us on Instagram at JustBaseballFans, on TikTok at JustBaseballFans, and also on Twitter at JustBBMedia to keep up with all of the latest that we have going on here at the Just Baseball Network. I'll talk to you alongside Jeff for the next episode coming up on Monday.